I want to start this episode with a preface. We recorded this in the summer before Hamas's attack on October 7th and the subsequent genocide of the Palestinian people in Gaza. For one, our introductory conversation is about an air show that happened in Toronto, and we lightly comment on the fact that it sounds like an air raid. We obviously would not be discussing that so casually today. I also want to acknowledge that this situation in Gaza and now the West Bank has demonstrated a complete ethical collapse on the side of mainstream Western journalism in the way these events have been covered, erasing the horrific brutality being exercised against the Palestinian people right now at the hands of the Israeli government and with the support of our own tax dollars. But this coverage of the plight of Palestinians is not new, unfortunately. The situation in Gaza has also resulted in the murders of, at the time I record this, at least 36 journalists and media workers covering the genocide. These murders, like the targeted murders of civilians, are in violation of international humanitarian law. We want you to keep all this in mind before proceeding with this episode, which is about the protection of informed, independent, and ethical journalism. There's an air show going on in Toronto right now, which is basically a bunch of planes flying over the fucking city and making so much noise. It sounds like airstrikes. You can probably hear it at this very moment. Um, I can literally see jets going by outside our window right now. And the worst part is that this morning they they stopped for like a multiple hours, like maybe three hours. And the second we sat down and hit record, they started flying again. They're doing all these like tricks in the sky. It's literally the worst. I fucking hate it. It's very jingoistic and pro-military and <laughs> and just inconsiderate to everybody like so, no who is happy that the air show is happening a lot of people unfortunately not people i know in the area i used to live in people would all go up to the top of like the tallest building in the area and like watch the air show my parents used to take me and i'd freak out yeah that I was would, like this is so scary that would give me a panic attack i lived really close to the lakeshore as a kid and like Oh my god, we hated it every single year. Yeah, I also hated it. My dog would lose his mind. And you guys get to experience a little piece of it through this audio (laughs) recording. So yeah, if you guys hear that noise, that is what's going on. Disclaimer. We're going to Montreal this weekend. For a wedding. Yes, for a wedding. It's a fellow YouTuber named Friendly Space Ninja, if any of you guys will watch him. But yeah, we're excited. Uh, I haven't been to Montreal in a while. It kind of makes me sad going back because none of my friends live there anymore. I used to live there for a bit and it's just a bit depressing for me, but I think it'll be fun. I'll just pretend that it's not Montreal. You'll pretend you're in some European city six hours away from Toronto. Yeah, we booked bus tickets. And the the hack is that if you're ever going to Montreal, people always think that the train is superior to the bus. Little known fact is that if you book the front seat of a Megabus, the Megabus is double-decker. If you book the front seats of it, you get like a panoramic view. You get so much legroom. It's like an extra, I don't know, $10 to your ticket. And it makes the experience so luxurious. Yeah, but last time I took the Megabus to Montreal, we um, hit a car and we were just entering the city and we were just stuck sitting in our Megabus forever. And someone had to come pick us up because we were like, oh, we can't do this. Oh, yeah, they do also get stuck in traffic for, like, hours, especially yeah. if you're going on a Friday, so. <laughs> oh, on Labor Day weekend. Oh, fuck, yeah. <laughs> We're so stupid. <laughs> but to be fair, Via Rail, which is our horrible, horrible, godforsaken, decrepit train 
company here, which has a monopoly on like all passenger trains in the same way that like Amtrak does in the States. If you end up behind a freight train on Via Rail, you can be sitting on the tracks for like 10 hours. So truly I'll take the Megabus. At least you can like move. This one time Maya and I were both taking the train um, back to Montreal from Toronto after like Christmas break. And we thought we were getting on the same train because it was like the same boarding time. And I ended up getting on one train that like was a normal like six hour, five hour, six hour train ride. And Maya ended up on one that was like a 10 hour long train ride that took her to Ottawa and then back to Montreal. If you're not familiar with Canadian geography, Ottawa is a bit out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> it sucked so bad. <laughs> so in this episode, we're talking about a company that I think has had one of the most subtle but important impacts on not only the internet, but Western society as a whole. Dun, 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 dun. Which, believe it or not, is BuzzFeed. Now, you may hear BuzzFeed and go, you mean the people who got famous for writing shit like 13 potatoes that look like Channing Tatum? Or which ousted Arab Spring ruler are you? <laughs> Wait, no way. Both of which are articles that they have published. No way. And yes, BuzzFeed did make a name for themselves because of stuff like that. But what if I told you that BuzzFeed played a major role in changing the news and more broadly, the way that information flows in our society forever? I'd say get out of town, pack your bags and leave. Okay. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on BuzzFeed, Hannah? Like what at this particular moment in time is your perception of them as like a company? I mean, I mostly just think of them as like a product of a now past era. It's interesting to think about our youths and like the 2010s as like a bygone era, something that has cultural kind of artifacts to look back to. But now that, you know, we're a bit into the 2020s, I can see it like that. And and BuzzFeed is one of those artifacts. It really is so of its time, but really not meant for this world (laughs) she wasn't meant for this world um yeah it is kind of a bit of a relic of the past yeah and it's interesting because it has a digital footprint and like all of it exists still on the internet so it's like you can go back and revisit it the beauty of the internet i guess like you could go back and retake a buzzfeed quiz well buzzfeed's embroiled in a bit of shit right now they've honestly been causing waves ever since they came about uh, almost two decades ago. But most recently, it was revealed that they laid off 15% of their staff last year. And they've also been using AI to generate entire articles on their site. I think I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a pretty hot topic. And this has kind of brought them almost full circle to their origins as like a baseless millennial hell aggregator. But this is actually... A pretty steep fall from grace. Because what if I told you, Hannah, that BuzzFeed was actually taken pretty seriously for a few years there? Like, they literally won a Pulitzer Prize two years ago. Two years ago? That feels really recent. Yeah, this is, a like I said, a steep fall from grace. Like, the edge of a cliff kind of thing. I'm going to take you on a little deep dive in this episode into BuzzFeed's history as a company and their changing role in popular culture. This one was insanely fun to research. One, because 
I took a course in school called Journalism in Crisis, and it was so cool. It made me rethink like my entire field of study because I was like, journalism is so cool. And it was also a bit of a depressing class, but you know, what can you do? And also because a lot of the articles I was reading were actually written by former BuzzFeed employees. So I was kind of getting this like extremely intimate inside look at how things were unfolding in the company, which was really cool. I just think, like you said, like BuzzFeed is so emblematic of a particular moment in the culture. And I think it's something that we're never going to go back from, even if the company itself is a bit of a relic. Mm -hmm. You could say maybe, but it was a paradigm shift. (gasps) Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) I'm Maya. And I'm Hannah. And this is Rehash, a podcast about the social media phenomenons that strike a nerve in our culture, only to be quickly forgotten, but we think are due for a revisiting. This season is about paradigm shifts, moments that changed the way we do things for better or for worse. <gasps> if you like our show and you want to hear more from us, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rehash podcast, where we have bonus episodes, weekly mini episodes, and early access to our regular programming. If you don't want to join the Patreon, but you really should, feel free to rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts because that helps us out a lot. But give us a good rating, please. <laughs> yeah, we're very competitive. Five stars. BuzzFeed was founded by maybe one of the most quintessential tech bros out there. His name is Jonah Peretti. Jonah is a fucking nerd, but he's like a cool nerd. Like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, he's the Joseph Gordon-Levitt of Silicon Valley. Sick. (laughs) He got his master's at MIT where he became a bit of a micro-celebrity after this email exchange that he had with Nike, where he emailed them trying to order a custom shoe with the word sweatshop written on it. And the email went viral. (laughs) And this is what sparked a little idea in him that would become very central to BuzzFeed's, like, overall praxis later down the line. Can you guess what that is? Shock, clickbait, attention, crazy things to get them to look at you. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Yes. Uh, In this really great article by Nathan J. Robinson for Current Affairs, he says, quote, Peretti learned an important lesson from this email exchange, not about how to shame companies for abusive labor practices, which he apparently had little interest in, but about how to manufacture virality. Manufactured virality is what the idea was. I really think this falls into that like tech bro tradition of rebel capitalism, because I think what he's getting at here, like Robinson in this article, is that it's this kind of like co-optation of anti-establishment countercultural values, this whole thing being about abusive labor practices that are kind of in service of a type of like alt-capitalism, which is that whole idea of manufactured virality that Jonah will use later down the line to like rattle the industry, rattle digital media. Yeah. You know what I mean? Look at what statement I'm making by ordering a pair of shoes. Yeah, exactly. And and it was more about like how he did it than what the actual email was about, you know? But Jonah was kind of a wunderkind because in 2005, before doing BuzzFeed, he co-founded the Huffington Post. Wait, what? Yeah. Which? Oh, wait, what? Oh, I thought he was like some 
dweeby like 26 year old he was like a dweeby 26 year old who first made huffington post i'm sorry <laughs> how old was he when he founded huffington post he'd be 31 wow yeah wunderkind like i said damn so at huffington post this is where he developed this idea of spreadable content like something that's really unique to online media versus old media is that you have this ability to like cross pollinate right like things can be basically picked up and dropped and shared and like repurposed in a way that you couldn't do with hard materials in the way that you can spread content on the internet yeah exactly you can't really spread pieces of a newspaper in the same way unless you like cut it up and sprinkle them pieces put them on people paper mache some things but I don't know if it would have the same cultural impact. Probably not. <laughs> it's like that scene from Mean Girls when I think Regina's walking down the hallway and like throwing those papers everywhere. I um, mean, you know what BuzzFeed would do? BuzzFeed would take a gif of that and then they'd put the BuzzFeed logo over her face and they'd, they'd play it in, in um, an article. And somewhere a 25-year-old would <laughs> chuckle. <laughs> Huffington Post is an online news outlet. And because it originated on the internet, it had to adapt to that medium, right? And Jonas said something about this back in 2012, which I think really defines his particular imprint on digital media. He says, We can't have an algorithm that is targeting content only a reader will like. They want to see content that someone else in their life they care about will like, even if they don't like it very much. At the Huffington Post, we thought of the front page as a one-stop shop for everything you need in news. And Google is just a search box, and that's all you personally need. Now we're faced with a different environment where you're thinking about these networks of people who are sharing with other people in their lives, and that changes how you think about your front page. Do you think this is kind of an early conception of that whole filter bubble idea? In the way that like media funnels you, because of the algorithm, it's funneling you personalized content, so the only types of content you're getting are things that you'll want to see. So, like, for example, right-wingers are only going to be getting right-wing content on their Facebook news feeds, for example. Left-wingers are only going to get left. Like, that's a filter bubble. Sort of. But to me, it almost feels like the opposite, where it's like, instead of being hyper-specific to one demographic, it's trying to appeal to as many people as possible so that you'll share it to people from other demographics. You're like, maybe this, I don't like this piece, but I'll send it to my grandma. Well, to me, yes. I think when I initially read it, I was like, okay, I kind of feel like this is almost the anti-filter bubble because it's all these people seeing things they wouldn't usually see. But then I thought about it more and I was like, oh no, the person at this point is like acting as the algorithm. Like they're going to find content and they're going to, instead of them reading it themselves, they'll just send it to someone who they think will like it more. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not the algorithm and it's not the filter bubble, but I feel like it's like an early nugget of that idea. Like the internet teaching us to only look for things that we would want to see or pass on. The concept to me was that you're not reading it yourself. You're just going to pass it to someone else. Right. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, because I feel like it's almost the anti-filter bubble. But then it kind of also is like a little nugget of a filter bubble in the same way. Well, it's someone tapping into the direction that the internet's going in when it comes to like news and information, which is that the most powerful news story isn't about what's in it but it's about like how shareable it is and like how you can pass it on so like i think that that probably fuels what the filter bubble also becomes because that's about like just feeding people what they want to see yeah it's it's very interesting just these early the pioneer times (laughs) i know the olden days so at huff post jonah was pioneering 
SEO-driven articles, which were designed to make it to the top of a Google search result. And can you see how, like, attempting to push stuff to the top of a search result would shape the way that their news articles were written? Yeah. SEO is is basically using the words that are going to be most appealing to, like, a search term, basically. And it, so, it, it stands for search engine optimization. Yeah. So basically, like, you're writing things in the most attention-grabby way, maybe, like, saying things that aren't actually true not lying but using phrases that like are attention grabbing and aren't necessarily actually reflective of what you're saying or what's in the article yeah yeah so like articles have to be sensational they have to be buzzy and like most importantly they have to be clickable and this is where the idea for buzzfeed was born it's literally in the name literally so jonah launched buzzfeed as a side project in 2006 under the name buzzfeed labs which was operated out of this tiny office in the Lower East Side. And their first project was this thing called BuzzBot, which was this instant messaging client that would message people a daily link to a popular item that it found on the web. Mm. The idea was that it was a sharing platform. It was designed to make stuff go viral. And at this point, they didn't have any writers or editors. They just had an algorithm that generated, again, spreadable content. And the website then started getting a lot of traffic, and so they expanded into creating articles and spreadable content in-house. Okay. They hired a small team of writers who were enlisted to write stuff that was pretty adjacent to, like, Vice's content at this point. Like, that kind of shocky stuff about, like, eating endangered species or exploring the ugly side effects of meth. (laughs) Whoa, BuzzFeed was edgy? A little edgy. But you can kind of see how early BuzzFeed would evolve into what they were later known for. And, you know, while you may be thinking of all those, like, quizzes and listicles, which, for those who don't know, is a format that they invented where the information of an article is kind of presented in the form of a list, (laughs) they also started creating longer-form content as well in 2011 under a division on the site called BuzzFeed News, which echoed a bit more of a classic journalism style, like the stuff that Huffington Post was making. But regardless of whether it was fluff or more serious, the content that they were churning out was optimized to go viral. Stuff that used like super explosive and super colloquial language, like awesome and crazy in the headlines. Amazeballs. (laughs) To draw people's attention and make them want to share it. And it was all in the sharing. And this like spreadable viral content concept is what led to one of the most famous moments in BuzzFeed history. Do you remember the dress? Do I ever remember the dress? Want to regale it to the listeners? So the dress, there was a woman shopping for like, it might have been her son's wedding. It was someone's wedding. And she like sent a photo of it, I think, to a family member and was like, you like this dress? And then there was some disagreement over whether the dress was white and gold or black and blue. And so someone ended up posting it online. I think it was on Tumblr. On Tumblr. And it blew up overnight and it just became this whole debate. Is it white and gold or black and blue? I've seen both. Back in the day, I saw white and gold, but now I just see black and blue, which makes me sad because I felt kind of special being able to see white and gold. I don't know why. I mean, I think... It means nothing about anything. (laughs) So the reason that it blew up online is because of BuzzFeed. A picture of the dress, yeah, was posted as a poll article. It was sent, I believe, to one of the writers or editors from Tumblr. Again, this whole idea of like cross-pollination 
And they posted it in a poll article asking people which colors that they thought the dress was. And that article went mega, mega, mega viral. It literally got 28 million hits in a single day. The podcast Dakota Ring has a whole episode on the dress. And like, it's a crazy. It's a cool (laughs) moment in like internet history. So BuzzFeed was super lucrative around the early 2010s for a couple reasons. For one, they innovated a business strategy called native advertising where they would embed sponsored content within their regular content. I didn't know that was a BuzzFeed thing. Yeah, it's it's like something that they contributed to innovating. Um, so like cat articles sponsored by a pet food company kind oh, of thing. My friend sent me like a it's like, what Ken is your Ken quiz? I was like, I can't believe there's still BuzzFeed quizzes. And it was like, pick out outfits. And all the clothes were from Cider. And I was like, this is just an ad for Cider in an ad for Barbie. Native advertising. <laughs> what website was it? BuzzFeed. Oh, crazy. Yeah, that's why I was like, wow, BuzzFeed quizzes are still around. Yep. So like, then those sponsored posts would show up on social media platforms. When people like you and your friend clicked on the article the company would make money. And you see that, again, everywhere today, although it's like usually a lot easier to tell now, but there's a lot of copycats doing the same thing. BuzzFeed was able to avoid placing those like really cumbersome, really busy like banner and box ads on their site for quite a few years. Like that was the reason they were doing native advertising because they didn't want to like make their site too busy because those things are really annoying. And apparently they spent almost $10 million in 2013 buying spots for those ads on social media. Which led to all these other major digital media companies to follow suit. And so between 2012 and 2013, BuzzFeed tripled its revenue. The other reason they were super lucrative is a pretty big one. So the years following 2006 were a really good time to be a digital media outlet. Because the late 2000s and early 2010s were a bit of a heyday for social media. It was a time when there was like very little skepticism about tech and people actually, like, admiring tech founders. Way less regulation, I assume. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, like people like Mark Zuckerberg were getting away with whatever, and he was still understood as, like, a baby boy genius yep. in the public eye. And the rise of social media really influenced Jonah's vision for what he wanted BuzzFeed to be. The space that they would carve out was one where readers weren't supposed to find BuzzFeed by typing out buzzfeed.com into their search engines, Going back to that whole spreadable cross-pollination idea, they were supposed to find it on social media. And Jonah actually said that he'd rather have people tweet out an article than click on the article. Which, can you see the problems that this would cause? (laughs) Yeah, because then the only articles people are finding are things that are, like, shareable, shareworthy. It's not like you're looking up what's going on in the world or whatever yeah exactly and you're not you're not getting in-depth like context-based stuff you're just getting the headlines it really like laid the foundations for that whole phenomenon of like sharing or commenting on content without ever actually having read it yeah like i was on a podcast recently and a clip from the podcast was posted on social media and all the comments under it. Like, none of the comments had actually listened to the podcast. You know what I mean? Oh, even when people comment under your videos, they're like, well, this title is wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then it's like, even more so on Twitter, like the idea of seeing an article headline and commenting on it without even reading the material in it. But like having yeah. outrage about the article title. Do you think... It could be argued in a way that, you know, this whole manufactured virality, spreadable content thing. Do you think that BuzzFeed is a bit of an instigator or maybe like a pioneer of the attention economy? 
I mean, I would say so. I feel like the minute BuzzFeed popped up, it was like, this is the place where you just get the headlines. And then, yeah, even the listicle, it's like you're getting the most summarized version of events. It's like too long, didn't read. Like you don't have to go and read the actual original article or the original source of anything. You can just get everything summarized for you in one place then like a lot of the time the stuff you're reading it has nothing to do with current events it's like 10 celebrities that people hate working with and then it's like a gif of like emma roberts with a like a latte or something and it's like shit you definitely don't need to know about like you just don't need to know about it but it's like hey look at yeah. me look at me click on me click on yeah, me yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like here are 12 animals that look like other animals so you're not actually putting your attention to what's going on in the world at all yeah definitely and just the busyness the overcrowding of the internet this was the advent yeah. of it yeah also because there was a time when i was like buzzfeed quizzes are so fun and like you could do a quiz and then like the next day you wouldn't be able to find it because they'd have posted like 50 other quizzes on top of it in one mm -hmm. day yeah mm -hmm. the attention economy is definitely something that was incepted around the early 2010s when buzzfeed was dominating the social sphere yeah but this issue wasn't on the radar back then because this was very much a high point in the marriage between BuzzFeed and social media. Like their sex life was still very good, you know? So, you know, at that moment in time, social media and especially Facebook drove over 50% of BuzzFeed's total visitors. I believe it. Yeah. So no one's searching BuzzFeed.com into the search engine or at least 50% of people aren't. By the time 2013 rolled around, BuzzFeed's fluff pieces, as well as their long-form content, were getting more hits than any news outlet in the United States. Jeez. Even more than the New York Times and the Washington Post. And this is very troubling. I, I wonder why. And it's troubling, again, for a couple reasons. Mm -hmm. Manufactured virality does not come easy, and BuzzFeed proper had done some pretty sus stuff over the years, which has led to quite a bit of scrutiny. Mm. In the earlier days, especially when they had like a significantly smaller editorial team and were mainly focused on generating viral content, much of the stuff that would end up in their articles was scraped from the web. Like the entire business model of BuzzFeed proper was essentially to like mine Reddit and Tumblr again with the dress and wherever else for information and then repackage that for a wider audience who would find it on Facebook and Twitter. So for example, there was this article that they did called people are sharing non-obvious signs that are actually a cry for help. And it's eye-opening. What does that mean? <laughs> I know. And that had apparently been taken from a Reddit post about mental health. And this woman who was interviewed by The Verge said that she found one of her responses from that Reddit thread at the top of the BuzzFeed article with her username and everything still in it. Yeah, they would, like, just take people's tweets and put them in. Yeah, they just, like, yeah. put them up, which is really normal. And it, and it happens a lot just in news articles these days, too. Like, you'll see just, like, a tweet used as a photo or, like, evidence with the... Uh, person's handle which yeah. again it is in a public arena it's a public sphere technically and it's public domain but it's still kind of like whoa the internet is the wild west so this was all kind of like murky territory i've also sometimes done that like i've used reddit posts in my videos now i anonymize them but back in the day it's just like you wouldn't think about it because like no. these people are anonymous to be fair for the most part but still but since a lot of the time buzzfeed was scraping stuff and like not giving credit it could very easily fall into the realm of plagiarism 
They were a bunch of prolific BuzzFeed writers like Matt Stopera and Benny Johnson and Ryan Broderick, who ended up getting caught for plagiarizing stuff. And Nathan J. Robinson takes a pretty hard line on this in his current affairs piece. He says, BuzzFeed tried to create a money machine for investors by finding a formula for gobbling up content and harvesting clicks from it. To do this, they simply pilfered content from whatever sources they could. When BuzzFeed compiled an article like 33 animals who were extremely disappointed in you, they simply ripped the photos from anywhere they wanted without assigning credit, with the dubious claim that this was fair use. BuzzFeed was repeatedly forced to fire writers for plagiarism, though its entire business model had incentivized plagiarism. Right. Do you feel like this is the genesis of what we call the content farm these days? Absolutely. I was just about to say, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I once worked for a day at what was basically a content farm. It was a YouTube. It was like a network of YouTube channels that all specified in like, this one's celebrities, this one's sports, this one's whatever. But it was run out of this weird office in Toronto that had pictures of like Elon Musk on the wall. And I was like, oh God, okay, I can't take this job. I can't take this job. But basically they had me write YouTube videos that was like top 10, literally, I mentioned this earlier as an example, but I wrote one that was top 10 celebrities that everyone hates working with. And I was like, I this is plagiarism, what I'm doing. I'm just Googling celebrities people hate looking working with and making sure I'm not copying it all from the same thing. I kept the sources and they were like, that's so funny that you kept the sources in your script for like where you were getting this information from. I wrote it before lunch and then by after lunch they had filmed the video. It was crazy. Um anyways, I worked for a day and then I was like, I needed a job, but I was like, this is going to crush my soul. It was so funny to hear about because it's like, yeah, BuzzFeed really was the first, like undoubtedly the first to do that. And now it's like all these little copycat companies. There's all these YouTube channels like The Things and like all these like weird channels that are also kind of aggregators of content. And they do, yeah, exactly what you were doing with this company. Just taking shit from the internet and being like, look. And then they had me make thumbnails and they were like, this article or whatever is about bad drivers. And then they made me find the craziest picture of like a car stuck in a tree that had nothing to do with any of the things in the actual script. They had a template of like a red arrow that you could just stick in so it's like pointing to the car in the tree so you know to look at that like look this is about bad drivers i just wonder who consumes that you know that your job is just now ai generated now that job (laughs) oh i'm sure i'm sure they were the first ones to jump on chat gpt oh yeah definitely so yeah there's the content mining issue and then the whole advertising thing also became a problem because BuzzFeed was caught deleting articles from their site, which they alleged didn't age well. But this obviously took a turn when Gawker actually exposed them for deleting material that criticized certain advertisers. Like in 2015, they deleted this article by a staff writer named Arabelle Sicardi, which criticized a Dove campaign. And two of their editors sent out this internal email when it happened, justifying them deleting it by saying... When we approach charged topics like body image and feminism, we need to show, not tell. That's a good rule in general, by the way. 
We can and should report on conversations that are happening around something we have opinions about, but using our own voices, and hence BuzzFeed's voice, to advance a personal opinion often isn't in line with BuzzFeed Life's tone and editorial mission. But like, this was obviously bullshit because the article was like very clearly objective in tone. And then Gawker pointed out that Dove was one of the advertisers that BuzzFeed used, so it was likely more that BuzzFeed was trying to avoid a conflict of interest, even though, like, at this point, it was considered a journalistic source thanks to the BuzzFeed News division. So, like, technically it shouldn't be beholden to advertiser interests like that. It shouldn't be letting those interests at least sway the types of articles they're writing. If it's, like, an editorial piece, it shouldn't be swayed by corporate interests like that. That's the line. Yeah, and you would also just think for the sake of their company's integrity that they would want to uphold a certain standard across sections because that really does diminish how much you're willing to believe and listen to the news part of BuzzFeed. Well, yeah, and we'll see. Like, they had a lot of trouble being taken seriously even to the very bitter end as a news source. So there you go. When this was pointed out, that they had deleted the article because of this reason and not the other one. BuzzFeed was like a deer in the headlights and they ended up putting the article back up and apologizing. But because they were milling so much content and so much content was going viral on Facebook and Twitter around this time, they were generating enough revenue to make BuzzFeed News its own entity in 2018. Because remember, news is more or less where Jonah got his start, right? Yeah. So... They're competing now not only for spots on the Facebook algorithm, now they're just like a regular news competitor as well. But are they operating from the same approach as BuzzFeed? Well, we shall see. Like I said, the late 2000s and early 2010s was a very good time to be a digital media company, but it was a very, very bad time to be a traditional news outlet. Yes. Do you remember what it was like when print was, like, the main way that we got our news? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, growing up, I remember when we had multiple newspaper subscriptions and then when we didn't. And I remember even up until some point in high school, I used to read the... The Sunday funnies. <laughs> no, yeah, or but I, we, I'd read the Toronto Star while I was, like, eating breakfast and stuff. I mean, usually it was, like, arts and, like, style sections. That was my first introduction to, like, engaging with, like, the media in any way. Like, I would read film reviews and, like, concert reviews. I remember it was some point in high school when we stopped getting a print subscription to the newspaper. So I do remember a pre-online news time. Actually, something I always think about is my dad was a big Grateful Dead fan and he's followed the dead. And then in 95 he's in ireland i think with my mom and they get the newspaper and this is how he finds out that jerry garcia has died and i was like wow imagine not knowing something until it was printed the next day it's crazy crazy concept i know there are much bigger news stories to to, that people had that experience with but that little tay death scandal would never have made it to the public eye no (laughs) so quickly 
my parents also subscribed to a few newspapers and yeah, mostly the Toronto Star and I read it religiously. I loved the comic section, but Me sometimes too. I'd read the other sections. <laughs> um, I think there was a bit more of like a monoculture around then. Like obviously there were like different newspapers that had like different political leanings and whatnot, but it was kind of a situation where you were presented with the newspaper in its entirety, right? And you could definitely stick to your favorite sections, but you're still flipping over other like headlines and articles. So it's a bit more of like a holistic consumption of the news. The information you're getting is all kind of dictated through like the editorial opinions of like a group of people. And like, depending on where you live, that's what you're getting. Exactly. Which is really interesting to think about. Gatekeepers. Oh, the gatekeeper, but kind of in a good way. I really liked that it felt like there was a dedicated part of the day that people would like consume the news too. Like it would usually arrive in the morning. So most often my family and I would read it in the morning and it was kind of like a communal thing. Like we'd sit together and read it. It was kind of like an event, which I really liked. But most importantly, on the industry side of things, there was a guaranteed source of revenue. People had to pay for their newspapers in order to read them. You could put ads in the paper. There were ads that were placed in the paper. So that's also part of it. But... A giant chunk of profit came from over-the-counter payments and subscriptions. According to Pew Research Center, the total estimated weekday circulation of U.S. daily newspapers was 55.8 million in 2000 and dropped to 24.2 million in 2020. And the U.S. Census Bureau did a study on the usage of traditional media from the years 2002 to 2020 and found that in that time, newspaper publishers' revenue dropped 52%. And revenue for periodical publishing, so like newspapers and magazines, dropped 40.5%. So that's like literally sliced in half, basically. I believe it. Like you've seen the way that print publications are dropping like flies in recent years. Do you want to take a stab at some of the factors that would have contributed to the decline of newspaper consumption? Well, the greater shift online... This is well documented, like in the mid 2010s, people really started, even older people who were maybe keeping these print publications alive, started getting their news from Facebook and from social media. And so it almost feels like something that has to be printed once a day becomes outdated within like such a short period of time because things move so quickly now. Yes, there's the the digital media issue. And then there's also the recession. (laughs) Which just, like, completely crippled yeah. a lot of print media. Newspaper subscriptions. I remember my parents talking about how they were expensive, and that yeah. was one of the reasons we stopped getting it. Exactly. But digital media is the most, I think, obvious one to us right now. If you can get all your media, like, right at your fingertips, right on your smartphone or tablet, why would you subscribe to print news, like you're saying? Yeah. Or even watch broadcast, for that matter. So newspapers had to like more or less scramble to get themselves online, and that didn't prove to be very lucrative at all. Mm -hmm. Since 2011, Reuters has been putting together this annual report, which is all about the future of news media. And in their 2012 report, they found that overall, consumers were generally resistant to pay for news online. Because the internet's like a free haven, right? You're not, you don't want to pay for shit, at least in 2012, you don't. And you're also kind of like, I'm sure there's a way that I can access this for free. Exactly. Which meant that not only was print news collapsing, but journalistic bodies weren't making money in their new homes on the internet either. Especially when they have to compete with fuckers like Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, who were giving news to people in very, like, attractive formats. 
In the 2014 Reuters report, one of the key findings is that U.S. social sharing news sites like Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, and Upworthy are beginning to make inroads around the world with new formats and a fresh tone of voice aimed at younger people. And they announce a whole new category of weird news proving more slash as popular than entertainment news. Random. So random. Random for... (laughs) There was a considerable amount of job loss in the editorial sector, and it seemed like the position of news media was becoming more and more precarious by the year. I remember telling my dad in high school that I was considering wanting to go into journalism because he works in journalism, and he was like, don't. It's a dying profession. Yeah, exactly. We should all be well aware of the importance of journalism in a functioning democracy. But just to hone it in. Western political systems are basically divided into different decision-making bodies, or estates, which are meant to provide checks and balances on each other. So in Canada, for example, we have an executive branch, which is the prime minister and their cabinet. We have a legislative branch, which is the Senate and the House of Commons, or Congress in the U.S. And then we have the judicial branch, which is the court system. Those are the first three estates. And these estates are meant to hold the power holders, so the executive branch, accountable. And then there's journalism, which is largely understood as the fourth estate, in the sense that it functions as like a watchdog, which encourages the free flow of information to the public. So when you hear like freedom of information or freedom of the press, those are the democratic rights that journalism gives us. Without journalism, we would be living in ignorance of the world around us, and especially of what our government is doing. So... The whole idea that journalism was on shaky grounds because of digital media is concerning. So it was really, really, really important that social media could at least provide us with a new way to access the news. Enter the Facebook news feed. Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) Do you know anyone who gets their news on Facebook? I feel like there was a time like in late high school where I was getting a lot of information from Facebook because like I wasn't just going to the front pages of news sites but people would post articles and i'd go huh do i know people who still do like probably like probably older people i know but i don't want to make assumptions on their behalves (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah a lot of my older family members get their news on facebook i feel like it's because we had this mass exodus of young people it's mostly older people getting it. It's kind of actually fascinating how all the young people just like picked up and left Facebook. Like what felt like all at once. Eventually you were like, no one's here. I yeah. think just, and now I go on Facebook like once every five months. I feel like Instagram gave the young people all they actually wanted from Facebook, which was to pictures. look at pictures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Facebook used to be a social network, but why do you think it ended up becoming like a one-stop shop for everything like you know we have a marketplace now well because people were already checking it daily right i think and this is something i'm going to talk about a bit in like the vine episode but i think it just became this thing where every social media company is like trying to fulfill as many needs as possible to like make you stay on there as long as possible and it's like yeah you're checking facebook people share things on facebook it only makes sense that you would find a way to make news part of that and then something like buzzfeed which was doing well from facebook traffic you put two and two together you're like you could just replicate this on a wider scale i think you know the more ubiquitous social media becomes the more it has to like supplant daily life like you're saying in the same way that like a smartphone is technically a phone 
But when you think about it, it's also like a clock and an alarm and a social tool and a video a game computer. console. A computer. It's literally everything. Yeah. So the whole goal is to make it so that people are like relying on your company for everything. And I feel like that's been the project of Silicon Valley for years now. Yeah, Facebook is like a town square. I think Trump became this thing where people had news apps on their phones and were like checking Facebook just because everything he was doing became viral and it was like news, but it was also a viral story. It was like part meme, part entertainment, part unfolding thing and the news and it was political that it was like, it I think glued people to their phones even more because you're getting in time updates. Like there'd be jokes about how you'd go into a theater and you'd turn your phone off and you'd come and there'd be 50 New York Times notifications because Trump has like said this, done this, now like this bad thing is happening in the government. Do Trump and BuzzFeed have more in common than we think? <laughs> Five reasons why Trump is BuzzFeed's like, spirit animal. <laughs> the, the horsemen of the apocalypse, Facebook, BuzzFeed and Trump. The news <laughs> apocalypse, you know? <laughs> but do you feel like it was kind of a good thing, at least initially, that Facebook opened itself up to being a news aggregator? If you're trying to look back, clear your thoughts and your brain of any knowledge you have of the years to follow, and you're like, look, people are seeing the news. News outlets are getting a platform Maybe people are being exposed to what's going on in the world in ways that they wouldn't be if we were just leaving them to their own devices, which means like having a newspaper subscription and like actively keeping up, like you're being forced to see the news. I can see having like a sense of optimism about this maybe becoming like democratizing approach to the news and like a more accessible way to consume it, but it's really hard to think that way because I know how things turned out. Oh, I can't unsee what I've already seen. Yeah. Um, I think the initial intention may have been good, but it's also kind of dubious as to whether or not Facebook sat down and they were like, we'll host the news. Like, we'll take oh, it. No. I do think it was a bit more, like, indirect, probably, unfortunately. Like, in this New York Mag article I was reading, the author, John Herman, was talking about, like, how Facebook becoming a one-stop shop, quote, created a massive and sudden demand for fresh content, including, at the margins, news. And then he goes on to say, the platforms were hungry for stories, and what is a newsroom if not a machine for posting fresh and authoritative links ready to share, comment on, or get mad about? So it's kind of like they almost needed each other in a way. There's this really interesting study that I read by this guy named David Elliott Berman, where he compares tactics from the New York Journal in the late 19th century and tactics from BuzzFeed. Going back to that really great comment you had about how Facebook is a town square, he basically draws a bunch of parallels between like the busy streets of New York at the turn of the century and the way that newspapers and newsstands had to compete for people's attention, like as people were bustling around. Extra, extra, read all about extra, it. Extra, extra. <laughs> And he compares that to the way that Facebook newsfeed operates a bit like its own busy street. Like it plays host to all these companies and outlets that are just vying for your attention. Mm -hmm. And you're just kind of passing by. The only difference is that the street doesn't choose which stuff gets seen above others. Whereas the Facebook newsfeed has an algorithm that privileges certain stuff. And Berman thinks that BuzzFeed basically won that competition. 
of dominating the algorithm. Okay, yes, yes. You know, they've got like the flashy extravagant headlines down. They've got the fluff material. They've got the quizzes that are targeted towards your ego. They've got short form content like listicles for people who are just scrolling and they don't really want to read a whole piece, which apparently is all of us. (laughs) Uh, Berman also uses the example of BuzzFeed using targeted thumbnails that would like differentiate its posts from the other articles that they were showing up in the feed. So BuzzFeed kind of has the Facebook news feed on lock. It's also got Twitter on lock, which is another burgeoning news platform at this time. It's basically just dominating the social media scene. And again, Berman differentiates it from the New York Journal. He's like, whereas the New York Journal built a mass readership by featuring stories that held wide appeal to the general public, much of BuzzFeed's content strategy is directed towards targeting much more granular niche audiences, producing articles for a wide range of identities, fandoms, and subcultures. And this is kind of the beginning of the filter bubble that we're talking about earlier. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Algorithms are so, like, personalized, and when news or media bodies are optimizing their content to be personal to you, you're only going to be getting certain types of content. And it's always funny looking at people's different algorithms. Oh my god. The day that the insurrection happened, January 6th, my friends were talking about it, and I was like, guys... All I'm getting on my Twitter suggested page is that Jeffree Star is claiming to have had an affair with Kanye West. <laughs> and I was like, there's something deeply wrong with me. <laughs> Twitter was like, you're too dumb for this, sweetie. Yeah, they were like, okay, bitch. <laughs> but filter bubbles aside, because that's a problem later on. What you need to know for now is that the Facebook news feed is extremely lucrative for companies that got in on the digital media gold rush as early as possible. Companies that were basically native to the internet rather than traditional news bodies, which had to kind of like make a space for themselves on it pretty late. Yeah. We've gotten a lot of the background out of the way, and now I just want to focus on BuzzFeed news for a bit because I think it's really emblematic of BuzzFeed's overall cultural impact and also just really interesting. It's a bit of an anomaly as well. So BuzzFeed news was already quite popular by the time that 2018 rolled around, but this is when it really started being understood as a proper journalistic source that functioned basically like a traditional newsroom and employed a whole bunch of really prolific and well-respected journalists too. And before this even happened in 2018, BuzzFeed News actually broke quite a few high-profile stories. Some of these might shock you. Mm. Maybe just one of them. Okay. (laughs) So in 2017, they broke the sexual conduct allegations against Kevin Spacey. They also broke that whole story about Breitbart, uh, like, acting as an intermediary for white supremacists and neo-Nazis. I think I remember this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, In 2016, Chris Hamby reported this ongoing scoop about this secret court called the Investor State Dispute Settlement, which allows corporations to protect themselves at the expense of foreign laws and regulations. Whoa. It's crazy. I was reading the article and I was like, holy fuck. In 2020, they leaked a bunch of documents from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. And in 2021, their journalists, Mega Rajagopalan, Alison Killing, and Christo Buschek, actually won a Pulitzer Prize for, quote, a series of clear and compelling stories that use satellite imagery and architectural expertise, as well as interviews with two dozen former prisoners to identify a vast new infrastructure built by the Chinese government for the mass detention of Muslims. Oh, wow. Yeah. So their news division was actually doing some really great shit and winning like quite a number of awards to the surprise of just about everybody. 
That being said, though, they did have a quite a lot of trouble being taken seriously. Right-wingers basically wrote them off as leftist shills. Other people wrote them off. <laughs> I like that there's right-wingers and other people. <laughs> other people there wrote them off. two groups. <laughs> two people in this world. Other groups wrote them off as, like, that listicle website, which we were kind of talking about earlier. Yeah. And it didn't help sometimes that they did some pretty questionable shit, even the news division itself. Do you know what the Steele dossier is? I don't think so. I think you will once I tell you. Okay. Um, so basically, in January 2017, right before Trump was inaugurated, mm. there were murmurs about a series of documents that had been compiled by this British counterintelligence specialist, Christopher Steele, that contained information about a possible conspiracy between Trump and Russia during the election. Yes, yes, yes. You Familiar. remember this. Yes. How could you not be? <laughs> How could you not? It was like kind of crazy because it wasn't shocking, but also potentially shocking and also crazy that so much stuff happened with trump and that whole administration that i feel like so much of it is filed way in the back of my brain at this point i feel like literally every single thing that he ever did would have ended the career of any other president or at least like disgraced them into oblivion but there was just too much like yeah trump is a walking attention economy <laughs> yeah also uh, just uh, that whole era was a fever dream and it ended with us in a pandemic which was also a fever dream and it might happen again <laughs> so even though the documents had a ton of unverified information buzzfeed news went ahead and published the entire dossier on their site even though no other news publications or outlets had done that in their article the tagline said the dossier, which is a collection of memos written over a period of months, includes specific unverified and potentially unverifiable allegations of contact between Trump aides and Russian operatives, and graphic claims of sexual acts documented by the Russians. BuzzFeed News reporters in the US and Europe have been investigating various alleged facts in the dossier, but have not verified or falsified them. Which is like, why would you release it then? Yeah. It actually just sits as a PDF, like a full PDF in that article that you can just scroll through, basically. Oh. But then they justify releasing it by going, BuzzFeed News is publishing the full documents so that Americans can make up their own minds about allegations about the president-elect that have circulated at the highest levels of the U.S. government. What do you think about this? Like, there were lawsuits against BuzzFeed News by some of the names that were mentioned in the documents, but one of the judges dismissed them on the basis that the public has a right to know this information so that it can exercise effective oversight over the government. Um, and also that apparently the information, according to this judge, was allowed to be leaked because the documents were part of a government investigation. But, like, no other news outlets were going to release this. Like, it was just BuzzFeed News. I wonder if it's, you know, at this time, they're not really considered a legitimized news source or not in people's brains. So it's sort of like, well, everyone else is kind of standing maybe on like legacy, you know, like being part of a legacy news company mm. or just like having a level of journalistic integrity that you're trying to like maintain. Whereas BuzzFeed's like, well, we haven't even earned that yet. So it's like maybe they just feel a certain level of freedom to kind of publish those types of things plus it is in line with generating buzz and clicks and feed it, it kind of makes sense it's on brand for them yeah it's super on brand that's really interesting them just being like well who gives a fuck because no one trusts us and like no one takes us seriously anyways may as well like i'm sure they benefit from it like monetarily probably yeah because yeah. clicks and traffic bonuses which yeah. we'll get to but like yeah that that could definitely be it i definitely think it plays into the whole virality structure of their website even though buzzfeed news is operating as a traditional newsroom i think 
It does kind of permeate it a bit. But obviously, it's like super harmful to release information as a journalistic source if you haven't done the due diligence of verifying that information. Like, sure, the public has a right to know, I guess, but like, know what? What do they have a right to know? Like, they're saying they have a right to know the allegations, which I'm kind of like, I don't know. Because like now those claims, many of which have never been verified, like a lot of this has never been verified, are just in our minds now because it's just out there. We've already read it. Like you can't, again, you can't unsee it. Yeah, I guess it's like, it's hard in this specific context because of the person at the center of it and like all of that. It's kind of like, there was so much bad shit and crazy shit flying around his name and crazy shit that he was doing that it just felt like another drop in the bucket. Yeah, that's true. But I do think that, this really fucked up BuzzFeed's credibility because it's like people already kind of made fun of them for being this dopey leftist fluff newsroom. Mm. And so then getting accused of like lying, basically lying about the president or like defaming all these names, not a good look. Yeah. Like it just doesn't look good journalistically, regardless of what political side you're on. Here's the thing. Like I do really think, like I was saying that whole internet attention economy clickbait stuff really did like permeate the newsroom like i said and honestly newsrooms more generally journalism like so many other fields has very much fallen victim to the gig economy some scholars now refer to the current state of affairs for career journalists as huffinization in the sense that the pressure to write stuff for digital platforms that are trying to like chase an algorithm has given rise to quote Low pay and no pay journalism, where content is no longer king and following its abdication, part-timers and amateurs rather than professional journalists proliferate. Basically, now that we're not only in like a 24-hour news cycle, but also like a news format that's being delivered straight to your phone every single minute of the day, means that journalists are scrambling to keep up with the output and getting contracted rather than hired full-time, because of course, because all these organizations are struggling to bring in revenue, sometimes they aren't and they're just trying to, you know, maintain the bottom line. And for years now, many publications have been creating traffic bonus systems where writers are incentivized to pitch articles that'll get more clicks. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine the impact that, again, this is going to have on the type of articles that are getting written? Yeah, of course. I mean, we have to rely on journalists to be the ones to go, hmm, that tale of a story, like, I should chase that. I should, like, see what else lies beneath the surface for the sake of, like, the public's right to know about this or for the good that it could do. And when you're not being incentivized by that because in order to like feed yourself and and, and exist and have a job, you are expected to turn out whatever shit is just going to get people to click. Then all of these like stories go on unseen yeah like go unseen like and even that like secret court story i was looking at it and it it seems to have very little engagement on the buzzfeed website which is interesting yeah i mean buzzfeed news sorry even thinking about we covered caroline calloway and that article that natalie beach wrote about her was the most clicked article from the cut (laughs) 
of the year and i think there was damn i can't remember what it was comparing it to but there was some other big story i think to do with trump that had shit going on and this was still the one that was like the most read well exactly well it's like investigative reporting takes time and that is that is like a a beautiful skill of investigative reporters and that's kind of the beauty of investigative reporting but that's not something that's valued in the attention economy it's not valued right now because of this environment that buzzfeed and facebook have created and also BuzzFeed was really neglecting its newsroom financially. Like, there's this article by a former BuzzFeed writer named Rachel Sanders where she chronicles the super precarious nature of the news team. Like, starting all the way back in 2018, there were constant rounds of layoffs and budget cuts. She says, For nearly the entire time I worked there, there was never a sales team dedicated to pitching news content to advertising clients. There was no consistent infrastructure in place to help news bring in revenue through subscriptions or otherwise, a goal that was, by its nature, completely outside the control and purview of the journalists working there. And she said that the newsroom was very unique at BuzzFeed because many of the employees were part of a union in the newsroom, whereas like other employees from other departments weren't. And this is something that BuzzFeed fucking hated. And they hired this, like, union avoidance lawyer in order to fight them. Oh, God. And honestly, none of this helped the fate of their journalists. Because just this year, Jonas sent an internal email to his staff that said they were going to reduce their workforce by 15%, like I said at the beginning of the episode, across their business, content, tech, and admin teams, and that they'd be closing BuzzFeed News. Basically saying that he couldn't fund it anymore as a standalone organization. And that they'd be amalgamating their news brand into Huffington Post. And he ends the email by saying, I made the decision to overinvest in BuzzFeed News because I love their work and mission so much. This made me slow to accept that the big platforms wouldn't provide the distribution or financial support required to support premium, free journalism, purpose-built for social media. Last year, BuzzFeed lost $27. Sorry, dollars $27? <laughs> $27? <laughs> They lost $27 million in revenue and reported that people were engaging with their content 32% less than the year before. And its newsroom would end up being a casualty because, like, there are a few reasons on top of the long-form reporting not being valued. (sighs) Okay, it's, like, so awesome that because of their advertising structure, BuzzFeed was able to remain a free news source in the way that other publications couldn't. And that's really cool. Like, this Huffington Post reporter tweeted when the news about the shuttering was announced. He said, BuzzFeed News funneled venture capital into something genuinely very useful and necessary. High-quality reporting freely available for anyone to read. It was the envy of every reporter who entered journalism in the chaotic 2010s and didn't work there. What a loss. Which is interesting. Yeah. I think it was almost a bit of a gem or like a canary in a coal mine that then was quickly murdered. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really sad that... that a company that is facing losses overall has decided that the place that deserves to be axed to preserve funds is probably the most important, at least culturally speaking, like output that it has. Exactly. Right? There, I think there's a lot of fat that could probably be trimmed from BuzzFeed if they're forced to make cuts and news seems, at least it, from a moral standpoint, feels like the last thing that should go. And unfortunately, from a financial standpoint, because journalism is in crisis, is the first. <sighs> the thing is, also, much of that advertising that they were doing was reliance on external social media sites, right? This native advertising stuff, rather than BuzzFeed's own homepage. Mm-hmm. So what happens when those sites start to make their own changes? Well, 
We all know that Mark Zuckerberg got, like, super fucking weird over the past few years. He's, like, cuckoo crazy now. Meta. Meta. And in 2018, Facebook overhauled its newsfeed in service of areas that Mark Zuckerberg had a more vested interest in, and it pivoted back to focusing on user social interactions. Um, I went to the Facebook newsfeed, and it's so weird to look at now. Like, it's not really news at all. Well, because they've got so much shit for the role that they played in in a lot of the Trump shit that, like, they're, they're trying to kind of cover their asses and take away that part even though i would say now the most relevant thing about facebook is that people go to get their news it's not good that they get their news from facebook a lot of harm has come from that but i would assume that that is probably what's keeping them afloat for the most part because at least people born after the year 1990 aren't really using it socially except weird people yeah, there are some weird people who use it. People from, I, my, from high school where I'm like, I never spoke to you, but you update Facebook frequently. These people from high school posting like Facebook stories. I'm like, who is looking at it? Who's looking at your story? I'm so confused, but also good for them. Yeah, sorry, not weird people. <laughs> Different. I definitely think part of it is probably related to, well, definitely related to the flack and all the fucking hearings. Oh, absolutely. And, like, of course it's related to that. Which, BuzzFeed... I don't know, maybe they should have foreseen. BuzzFeed reported that Facebook made up the majority of the decline in audience engagement with their content. Because remember, like 50% of the people coming to their website was from Facebook. It's a website built to be, like, to optimize what Facebook has to offer. So if Facebook's offering that, then of course it's going to affect them. Then what do? What? (laughs) (laughs) And without Facebook, advertisers were, like, way less willing to advertise with them. And this had a very big ripple effect, of course, because, like, all those other sites that went through, like, kind of copied what BuzzFeed was doing, like, Gawker and Vice, were also hit by this. Oh, yeah. So, you know, this was actually a very brief digital news heyday. This reporter, Max Tanney, had something really interesting to say about it. He said, Facebook's sharp turn away from news and the mercy killing of blue check Twitter, along with BuzzFeed News's shutdown, cuts at Insider, and Vice's increasing desperation for a sale are another indication that the social web that defined the 2010s is over for news consumers. He also predicts that blogging and newslettering are on the rise again, so we could be seeing a bit of a pendulum swing there. I think absolutely. Just look at Substack. Yeah. Oh, I fucking love Substack. It just brings me joy. I don't know I, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> and I think that's great. And like, blogging is great, but it's not news. <laughs> it's It's not the same as the news. Yeah, it seems like a lot of journalists are pivoting. Like there was this thing I was reading about called ambient journalism where journalists will kind of independently report stuff on Twitter based on what they find, like independent of an organization. I wonder, I actually am not entirely sure if, but I'm sure journalists are also using Substack. I think a lot of people are leaving their jobs to pursue a career on Substack because it pays. Yeah, it pays, but it's it's not the same as like working for an organization that's going to be like verifying you. Yeah, like you're you're putting a lot of trust into the person who runs the Substack, which I think is great for a lot of subject matter. But if we're talking about like the cold hard facts, you might want there to be some kind of like organization you know is yeah fact checking it and like has a vested interest in that. So yeah, some overarching body. And then lastly. That whole, like, virality thing? Well, if your entire business model hinges upon viral content, then that's what's going to make the most money, which means longer form, less sensational content is not going to. Like, 
yes, you can make enough revenue to start a hard news division, but that doesn't mean you're going to be able to retain it. And that's why so many major publications very successfully turned to a subscription-based model, because it's reliable. Again, this is just the most major publications that were successful at bringing in revenue through subscriptions. Other smaller publications were not. Yeah. Another former BuzzFeed writer, John Herman, there's two Hermans here, wrote this really great article where he says that social media platforms' interest in journalism was only incidental in passing. And he says that after chasing traffic bonuses at Gawker and BuzzFeed and then going to work for the New York Times, he can see the difference there. I wonder if that like inflated tech bro ego of these like Silicon Valley corporations has something to do with it and like how that compares to legacy media, which feels like its roots are a bit more firmly planted, even though they're facing existential threats. I feel like they're a bit harder to rip out. What do you think of that? Like, I think all of these companies being beholden to the whims of just like one fucking guy who everyone said was a genius 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. And I think that whole culture is just like, and this is something I'm I'm going to be exploring in my episode on Vine, but a little bit, but just this idea of like never being able to like exist in the now, always looking to the future and to, yeah, what some like prophet of Silicon Valley is telling us we should go in or what their interests are in, but also just instead of like trying to maintain people's attention, you're following people's attention. So, oh, people aren't looking at the news the same way that they were. So we should just slash it instead of trying to find ways to, I don't know, invest in like maintaining a culture where people engage with the media the way that they did. That's such a smart point. Yeah, that is really interesting. It's almost like the the audience is king rather than, like who, who are the knowledge holders who, what direction is the information flowing from? And it's almost like that's been reversed or like it's a little bit now a push and pull between audience and information holders. Because the people who are calling the shots are the people that are concerned with what do people want? What's the next big thing? Not people who actually have like dedicated their time to journalism and that like as a field and what what it means and it's like morals and all of that. Like they have to follow the lead of the Mark Zuckerbergs. And even we we did a bonus episode on Justin Bieber and thinking about Scooter Braun, who is sort of like the tech bro of the music industry and how with Justin Bieber, they were like, there was planned obsolescence there almost, or, or not planned obsolescence, but like an awareness of his expiration date. So they were like, we need to venture off into as many things that we can, put his name on as many things as we can, just do certain things so we can maximize our profits while we can. And then he got hung to dry. And like, obviously it's not the same as the news media, but like as a metaphor, you know, I'm sure you can see it. No, totally. Justin Bieber is traditional news. And I think these these pioneers... Or his BuzzFeed, I don't know. <laughs> is Trump BuzzFeed or is Justin Bieber Justin BuzzFeed? <laughs> BuzzFeed... <laughs> Yeah, I feel like just these guys who kind of invented the attention economy have kind of are also victims of this, like, sorry not to use this phrase, this, like, cultural ADHD. <laughs> like, just this, like, Elon oh, Musk. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> On behalf of people with ADHD, I'm actually going to pack up my bags and <laughs> cancel this podcast. Take a stand, Hannah. <laughs> but it just feels like, oh, I'm not interested in this anymore. I'm going to move on to this thing because that seems like what's good right now. Like this need to just be innovating at all costs. Like you're seeing what happened with fucking Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Like it's such an ego fest. It's like he's specifically doing things 
things that are clearly just appealing to like what he wants as a person and are actually probably damaging for his business. Well, yeah, whereas like a legacy media outlet isn't all wrapped around the ego of one pasty nerd like it's 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 a it's roots are planted it has like a a bunch of people at the top and it's it's just it's very different unless it's vogue and she's not a pasty nerd she's a nerd with a fuck fuck ass bob Bob. so herman has this great line where he says the death of buzzfeed news the unceremonious pivots to nowhere by the bloated social giants and the ransacking of twitter by the world's richest man however once again drive home the absurdity of a marriage between the news media and a speculative tech industry that can only conceptualize it either as a threat or as food. The relationship has been broken for a long time. I was like, snaps. Fish friends and not food. <laughs> I just want to end off with a discussion about what this all means and symbolizes about the future of journalism. How do you consume news, Hannah, like today, if at all? Um damn twitter <laughs> i'm not i'm 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 just as bad as everyone else i'm just as bad as well i have a new york times subscription Me and too. whenever the the um notifications pop up my phone i just i go oh i thought it was a text <laughs> yeah no literally i mean like i subscribe to the new york times the new yorker i guess the new yorkers it's a bit different but i i have these new subscriptions but they're for research and they're not supporting our local news organizations either. No, it's I'm I'm part of the problem. But in my defense, I hit news consumption age in the midst of all of this, right? Like it was never. Yes, I used to read like the entertainment section of the Toronto Star, but like by the time I was interested in what was going on in the world, like it had already pivoted to consuming news from social media. And like if the older people in my life who grew up with the newspaper are getting their news from social media. How would I build up that habit myself? Am I just making up excuses? No, I think that that's fair. It's it's not that people got tired of the news. It's just that the news changed and yeah, that's exactly what happened. And, and just, Trump also. It integrated with places that we went to get other types of entertainment. I think BuzzFeed contributed to this as well because it was an entertainment site and a place where you could get news. And then... You know, I think the Trump administration played a role in, like, the news became entertainment. People started watching late night shows for political news, but also comedy. And then, yeah, you're going to social media and you're getting entertainment and news. Going and seeking out the news on its own feels, yeah, just feels obsolete. It feels obsolete. So last year's Reuters digital news study, they found that consumption of traditional media such as TV and print declined further in the last year in almost all markets, and that online and social consumption wasn't making up that gap. Many people are basically turning away from the news completely, like both of us have, and they reported that interest in the news fell sharply from 63% in 2017 to 51% in 2020. And this is especially prevalent among young people. Like, our generation is barely consuming news through news websites or apps. Mm -hmm. Most of us are informed about it through social media. Apparently, TikTok is the fastest growing news network among people in the 18 to 24 age group. I believe it. Which is like, fuck. This didn't happen out of nowhere, though. Like, all the way back in 2000, scholars were concerned with the way that news was being fragmented by social media. Back then, they were talking about email. 
Back in 2012, this scholar said that social media was impacting the news because it, quote, facilitates the immediate dissemination of digital fragments of news and information from official and unofficial sources over a variety of systems and devices. We could probably call this networked news is how I'll refer to it. Not network in the sense of, like, belonging to a cable network, but, like, networked in the sense that, like, little parts of the news, like, excerpts or clips or headlines are being lifted and spread around because of this whole spreadable content thing. Yeah. This, like we talked about earlier, is causing a lot of problems for how we consume the news because we're getting them out of context. We're getting our headlines out of context. We're getting images out of context. A recent example I can think of is the way that The Hollywood Reporter reported this quote by Diablo Cody about the Barbie movie. Yeah. And they paraphrased it in their tweet about what she had said and ended up mischaracterizing what she said. And then there was a bunch of outrage about it. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And like the misquote went viral. And then a bunch of people were like, oh my God, if you guys just fucking opened the article and read the article, you'd see that that's not what she's saying. Yeah. I also think people are just distrustful of the news media because of the Trump administration, as we talked about. Yeah, I think it just really did a number on the news. And once if we started looking to Twitter for, like, updates on, like, yeah, what Trump is doing and, like, news and your sandwich. And, it, yeah, it is out of context because it's quotes and it's, like, snippets and then it's sandwiched between some other bullshit. It's just, like, it just... I think really does something to like the prestige of the news and how we regard that, you know? Mm -hmm, Exactly. I don't know how to solve the problem of the attention economy. I wish I could find more solutions. None of the articles I was reading really had any. It was very uh, doomsday. But all this is to say, BuzzFeed, I think, is just so fascinating because I think its newsroom fell victim to the very environment that BuzzFeed created on the internet. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of like a Greek tragedy almost. Snake eating its own tail. Yeah. Icarus. (laughs) I don't know, some kind of metaphor. Yeah. And so, you know, for a moment there, they actually were doing some really great work. And it really went to show that when a company cares about something as important as journalism and decides to funnel their money towards that, like the amazing stuff that can happen there. But when that company is also a company that is a content mill and creating this like Lord of the Flies situation on on all of our social media feeds, that won't last very long. No, but also Maya, it is really important that we keep a space that's gonna tell us which condiment we are, show us gifts of Ryan Gosling. Which grumpy cat are you, Hannah? There's more than one grumpy cat. Rehash is hosted by Hannah Rain and me, Maia. It's produced and edited by me, and the intro and outro song is produced by our talented friend, Ian Mills. Thanks for listening. 